This morning, uh, I want to talk about the Trinity. I've wrestled with how to introduce this morning's message. It's a subject we don't talk about very often, possibly because it's quite tricky to understand, very difficult to explain, and almost impossible to give a clear answer to any questions about it. Every Bible teacher knows that a question about the Trinity is the second most difficult question they'll ever have to answer. The most difficult is, Daddy, what's a concubine? (laughs) But if you're not clear what I mean when I talk about the Trinity, I'll try to summarise it with three statements. The first one is, God is three persons, the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. Each person in the Trinity, the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, is each completely God. And the third statement, but there is only one God. Easy. (laughs) I've seen various ways of trying to explain it, but most explanations of the Trinity seem to start with the idea of one God and then try to find an elegant way to chop up God into three bits. St. Patrick is said to have used a shamrock, a a three-leaf clover, to illustrate the mystery of the Trinity when he took Christianity to Ireland in the 5th century. And if you ever see pictures of St. Patrick, he's almost always portrayed holding a shamrock. I've also heard it explained that God is like water. He can take three forms, ice, liquid and vapour. That doesn't really work for me, because a bucket of water is never all three forms at the same time. And the best one, I've heard God described as an egg, with the three persons of the Trinity being the shell, the yolk, and the white of the egg. Well, that, that doesn't really work for me, and can we leave it at that? God's, God's an egg. <laughs> uh, which, which part of the Trinity is, is which? which? Which is the yolk? And you can't explain the Trinity without breaking any eggs. And most of these explanations start from the perspective of one God, um, and perhaps that's to be expected. The revelation of God as a trinity through scripture comes gradually as we move from the Old to the New Testament. So starting with one God, maybe that's the natural place to begin. And not only that, but our natural tendency is to think of God as a bigger, better, more powerful version of ourself. Who hasn't imagined if I could be God for just one day? But starting an explanation of the Trinity with one God is starting with an incomplete revelation. The most complete revelation of God we have in Scripture is of God as three persons. So rather than trying to chop one God into three persons, let's do it the other way around. Let's start with three persons, the more complete revelation, and reconcile that with one God rather than working in the other direction. There's lots of places in the Old and New Testament which tell us there is only one God. For example, Paul affirms in Romans that God is one. And James reminds us that even the demons believe that God is one and shudder. But for me, the starting point to understanding the Trinity is the Shema. Now, if you're not familiar with it, it's the foundation for the daily prayers of Jewish people. And it was also described by Jesus as the greatest commandment. And it starts in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, at first glance, the Shema might seem to contradict the idea of God as three persons. 
the Lord is one, it says. However, the Hebrew word ikad, which is translated as one, isn't often used in scripture to indicate a mathematical singular. It's, it's more often used to describe a unity. For example, in Genesis, it says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Unity rather than a single. And a, a similar meaning of the word, although in Greek this time, is found in John 10.30. I and the Father are one. So the word one doesn't necessarily indicate that God is one person. It can also indicate unity. Not only that, but the context of the Shema and similar verses suggests it's a declaration of the uniqueness of Yahweh. The surrounding nations believed in an entire pantheon of gods, and it would have been normal to worship lots of these gods. The thing that distinguished the Hebrews was rejection of this pantheon to follow the one true God, Yahweh. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. In the culture of the Middle East, when the Shema was written, the statement that God is one was startling. They believed in so many gods, and it'd be perfectly normal to worship lots of different gods at different times, or even change the God you worshipped when things weren't working out. The Shema doesn't seem remarkable to us in the modern world, because for the last few hundred years, most of the Western world has believed in one God, whether the God of Christianity and Judaism, or the God of Islam. But for the cultures surrounding Israel in those times, gods were like football teams. There were dozens of them. For them, Yahweh would be like asking, what football team do you support? And getting the reply, oh, there's only one football team, Grimsby Town. <laughs> so I have to shoehorn them in somewhere. <laughs> there is one God. But it's difficult to get our heads around this idea. How can God be one? yet be three persons at the same time? How can it be explained? Can it be explained at all? As well as being confusing for us, it's also a major stumbling block to the other Abrahamic faiths, Judaism and Islam. Their core, unshakable belief is that God is one. We believe the same. God is one, but in three persons. And as monotheists, they'll naturally always question how God can be one, yet in three persons. However, if we ask them to describe what or who God is, it wouldn't be possible. They'd likely dismiss the question as being impossible to answer, as God is impossible to describe. And that's a reasonable response. And it's summed up exactly with Moses' initial encounter with God in Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Explain God, I am who I am. We can describe his characteristics. We can describe some of the things that God does. But where do we begin to describe who God is? I am who I am is the only way God dis defines himself in the Old Testament. But there's a great deal of description of what he does. He's described as creator, redeemer, provider, shepherd, and so on. 
Scripture dis- defines what God does and describes his character, but it doesn't define him. To attempt to define God, whether as a single person or as three persons, isn't possible. But none of those things God does contradicts the fact that God is a God of three persons. The Trinity is a mystery, and we'll be thinking a lot about that mystery over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas, when God became flesh and dwelt among us through the work of the Holy Spirit. But God revealing himself as three persons doesn't explain the mystery of the Trinity. It just leads us deeper into that mystery. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. Now, one thing with churches like ours is we're not really into liturgy. And we don't recite the creeds very often. I'm going to make an exception today because there's one creed in particular that gives us a good overview of the Trinity. And that's the Athanasian Creed. It's a very long one. And when we've gone through it, you'll understand why we don't do it very often. But I'm just going to read the first half, um, and Peter's going to project it onto the screen as well. I'll also explain before I read through it that the word Catholic in the creeds doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It means worldwide or universal. Okay. Whoever wishes to be saved... Before all things, it is necessary that you hold the Catholic faith, which faith, if anyone does not keep it whole and unharmed, without doubt, he will perish everlastingly. Now, the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is all one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father infinite, the Son infinite, and the Holy Spirit infinite. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And they are not three eternals, but one eternal. Just, they are, just as they are not three uncreateds, nor three infinites, but one in, uncreated and one infinite. In the same way, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty. And yet, they are not three almighties, but one almighty. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus the Father is the Lord, the Son is the Lord, and the Holy Spirit is the Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. Because just as we are compelled by Christian truth to confess each person singly to be both God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say, there are three gods, or three lords. The Father is from none, not made, nor created, nor begotten. The Son is from the Father alone, not made, nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son, not made, nor created, nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity there is no before or after, no greater or less. 
but all three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-equal. So that in all things, as, al- as has already been said, the Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity is to be worshipped. He therefore, he therefore who wishes to be saved, let him think thus of the Trinity. Does that clear it up for you? <laughs> so, actually, should we go on and read the rest of it? The, the rest of the creed. That's only the first half. Now that, <laughs> now we'll, we'll stop there. So, God is three persons in one. And it's important. It's not something we should hear, file away in our memory bank and move on. It reveals the very character of God. But again, how can we make sense of it? We can follow the explanation, accept that God is three persons. But is there more? Well, fortunately, the New Testament didn't just reveal the mystery of the Trinity and leave us baffled. I'm going to use a bit of artistic license and sum up the Trinity with three words. You've heard of the three-point sermon before? This is a three-word sermon. God is love. And one of my favourite Bible passages about God's love, which contains the Trinity, is in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is being baptised. After being baptised, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this is how the Father shows his love, by giving his Spirit. But but that wasn't a one-off thing between the Father, Son and Spirit. During creation, the Spirit hovered over the waters like a dove. And just as God sent Jesus, God's word, into the wilderness after his baptism, so at creation, God's word went out from him by his spirit. The spirit is the one through whom the father loves, blesses, and empowers his son. With the word, Jesus, the divine logos, the Holy Spirit creates and gives new life. The Father, Son and Holy Spirit aren't three disconnected persons in the Trinity. They always work together. And they're not just connected by love. They are love. And this is how God has always been. Father, Son and Spirit. It's easy to wonder if God became loving at some point. Maybe at the incarnation. Or maybe at creation. He decided he might give this loving, sharing thing a try. No. The Father and the Son have always been sharing this love with and through the Holy Spirit. Constantly, through Scripture, Jesus is described as the Son. And he's the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, anointed with the Holy Spirit. And when there's a Son, there's a Father who begets the Son, giving life. And they've been Father and Son for eternity. God is eternally a Father, eternally outgoing, eternally giving life. There are historic accounts of ancient Babylon, which also has its own creation story, and some of the details are similar to the Bible. But one aspect is very different, and it involves a god called Marduk, who said, let's make mankind so they can be slaves for us. Does that sound like our god? No. Here's what it says in our creation story. God said, 
Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God created mankind in his image, and his image is not of a single person, it's of a community. And God didn't create so that he could rule and dominate mankind. God is love. God created so that he could give. The same love that is the Father, Son and Spirit. When we turn to God, we turn to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. God is love. But sometimes we find a problem. If God is love, how do we explain the wrath of God? If God loves us, why is God sometimes wrathful? When we think of someone loving us, we don't think of them being angry, do we? We tend not to think of them destroying cities or turning their anger on a person or a group of people. We're very happy with the idea of the love of God and God forgives and all the nice cuddly things like that but not so much with the other side of it, God's anger. But it is well defined in scripture. For example, King Saul was rebuked by Samuel for not executing the Lord's wrath against the Amalekites. And again, in scripture, God's wrath frequently burned against the kingdom of Judah because of the faithlessness of Judah's kings. I read a story about the Commonwealth's chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, who was asked the question, How can a loving God have wrath? Jonathan Sachs suggested that there was no such thing as the wrath of God. He felt that the word wrath was a translation artifact. That when we read about the wrath of God in the Old Testament, it actually refers to the angst of God, the internal pain of God, God's anguish at the sin and rebellion of the world. Well, it's a nice idea, but it doesn't explain how God acts on that wrath. So how is wrath compatible with a loving God? Couldn't God just forgive everyone their sins and move on? Well, no. Wrath is proof of a loving God. God is love. But how could a loving God allow evil to continue unabated? Not many of us have a problem with God's justice when we see some of the evil in the world. Islamists kidnapping schoolgirls, for goodness knows what. Communities being murdered because they don't share the right religion in a given regime. All kinds of oppression going on in the world. A loving God couldn't allow that kind of wickedness to continue. And we don't mind that kind of justice. But we all know that's not the only type of sin in the world. About a hundred years ago, a newspaper editor closed an editorial with the question, What is wrong with the world? He received a reply from a well-known theologian called G.K. Chesterton, who you might have heard of. And he replied with this answer. Dear sir, in answer to your question, what is wrong with the world? I am. It's easy to forget that we also deserve that wrath. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve the wrath of God. I enjoy reading Christian books. And one of the things I most enjoy reading is how different people can read the same Bible passage but take a different meaning from it. And a lot of this tension comes from scripture itself. Accounts vary. Theology develops as we move along the Bible timeline. 
different authors in the Bible have a different perspective on things, not to mention the fact the different languages and culture the Bible was written in. And sometimes the Bible isn't completely clear on all things, but the issues that make people the most angry seem to be the ones that the Bible is completely clear on. And one of those is judgment, God's judgment. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve the wrath of God. We could try to brush away the wrath of God, just say that God is a God of forgiveness. He'll just let us off for any transgressions we make. We could we could imagine he's like a doting granddad who'll just forget the mistakes we've made, pretend he wasn't paying attention when we've sinned against him or against our brothers and sisters. But that would dismiss the work of the cross. At the cross, God's wrath was emptied out. God's judgment was satisfied. However you describe it, God's Son took the Father's wrath, the wrath that we deserved at the cross. God's wrath is real, and Jesus bore it for us. God is love. And it's only possible because God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Only God himself was able to provide the price for our sin against God. Take away the Trinity, and you take away your salvation our salvation. But the Trinity is about much more than our salvation. God is love, and there's nothing God wants to do more than give of himself. At Jesus' baptism, the Father sent the Holy Spirit to fill Jesus with his love, and he's filled us with the same Holy Spirit. We are adopted as children of the living God. A couple of weeks ago, Angie spoke about coming to faith and being welcomed into this family, the church. Don't look embarrassed, Angie. I'm only going to mention you this once. It's not about you. (laughs) By giving us the Holy Spirit, God has welcomed us into his family. He's included us in his Trinity family with his overflowing love. And as we overflow with that same love, that's why we share our faith with other people. Not because we're collecting notches on our belt for each person we've led to Christ. Not because Richard or Peter or whoever's up here on a Sunday morning is nagging us to bring people to church. We must share our faith with people because we're so overflowing with the love that God has poured into us that we can't help but share that love. In Galatians 4 it says this, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The Father has adopted us as his children, to be heirs along with the Son, and to share in their love and fellowship through the Holy Spirit. One of my favourite passages in the Bible is 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to read it now. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. In Romans 5, Paul writes about how God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And by that Spirit, we know that we are adopted and loved as his children. So to finish, um, Karl Barth, the famous theologian, wrote about how when we often see God we often tend to just project a better version of ourselves into the sky. Um, and he made a, a certain quote, you cannot speak about man by speaking about God in a loud voice. God isn't a mirror of whatever's happening in the world. He's not a projection of whatever we want God to be. God the Father has always been a father. He doesn't change. He's always been father to the son. And the love between them has always been outgoing. Never selfish, always wishing to give. The Holy Spirit isn't some vague supernatural power. He's a person. The Bible tells us he teaches. He prays for us and on behalf of others. He speaks to us and comforts us. And most of all, he constantly points us towards the Father and Son, reassuring us that we are adopted as his children. The Son has always been the Son, always representing the Father, always doing the Father's work, so that if we see the Son, we see the Father. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, isn't man in a loud voice. He's God in a human voice. So I'm going to close with a psalm. Um, and it's Psalm 133. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to that. In this psalm, the writer talks about God anointing Aaron, the high priest. And it's a beautiful preview of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. After the Hebrews left Egypt in the Exodus, Aaron was appointed to be high priest of Israel. But now we have a greater high priest, Jesus. And as the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit is poured by the Father onto the head of Jesus, our great high priest, it flows down onto his body, the church, and enables us to love God and each other with the same love that flows between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. It is like the dew of Hermon, coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Before I close in prayer... I want to recommend a book that's inspired me to talk on this subject. I read this book around a month ago, and it's changed the way I think about the Trinity. So I think it's only good manners to mention it. We often have um, people recommend or talk about a book and holding it up during a Sunday morning message. But uh, I do all my reading on one of these reading machines. So uh, it possibly doesn't have quite the same impact, but I'm going to go for it anyway. It's called The Good God, Enjoying Father, Son and Spirit by Michael Reeves.
I can't let you borrow it because it's on my reading machine, but I recommend it anyway. Okay, shall we pray? Lord God, thank you for all that you are, and thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your Son and your Spirit. I ask for a greater revelation of you and your glory, that we might all have an even greater feeling of being your children, and that your love might overflow from our lives into the lives of everyone we know, drawing them closer to you. Amen.